Welcome to the Let's Get Chemical podcast, a podcast made by chemical engineers for chemical engineers, in which we talk with alumni and other guests who work in the world of chemical engineering about their experiences, their jobs, and other hot topics in the industry. First of all, some public service announcements through Olympic promotional channels. We will try to announce podcasts beforehand and allow you to send in questions. If you want to be part of the podcast or have a strong opinion on which topics we should talk about or should be discussed, please let us know. My name is Frizo. I'm a 24-year-old chemical engineering student here at AUT. And as you might remember, last episode was with Bob Hengeveld, who currently works at the government and lives in Utrecht. If you haven't listened already and want to know more about Bob and his study time and everything about him, then you can find the episodes on YouTube, on the Olympic website and on Spotify. For today's episode, we will remain close to home and we have a guest currently living in Enschede, Thomas Brouwer. Hello. Dear Thomas, could you maybe give a small introduction about who you are and what you do? Yes, of course, Friso. Thanks. Um, well, I'm Thomas Brouwer. I'm uh, already 31 years old, so I'm yeah, a little bit uh, young still, I hope. <laughs> um, to introduce myself, I uh, did also my studies here. So bachelor, master, and also was stupid enough to, to do the, the PhD, but let's go into that more detail later. Uh, so I did uh, uh, my chemical engineering studies here. Uh, did also a board here at Allenbeek. I was the 48th board, so uh, you can do the math backwards. Ten years back. <laughs> uh, and also did a year uh, at the Umbrella Association, so the OS. Uh, also did a year there, which I really like because then you have a nicely complementary yeah, skill set. Uh, besides going into depth uh, with the CT study, uh, but also do some organizational skills and... Uh, and meet a lot of ne- different people from other studies. Yeah, and then um, after my studies, so I did my uh, master uh, assignment at Professor Boulos Schuur. And halfway uh, during my master assignment, he told me, well, I really see you as a very nice PhD candidate. So I had to think about it for about five minutes. And I said, yes, why not? And five years later, I did my, uh, I got my diploma, unfortunately, during Corona crisis. So uh, I uh, did not do the ceremony, but yeah. Of course, it's, uh, it's fine. And after that, I uh, started working at Host. And that's where I am now still. Nice. That was shortly my, li- my life story. <laughs> awesome. It, it's, it's funny because when you were telling about your study time here, the board years you did and everything, it reminded me of how much we have similar, as me also have done a board year at Olympic, also board year at OS, same dispute, <laughs> stuff yeah, like that. Also, yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome to hear that. Yeah. And out of those things like bachelor, master, PhD, is there one memory that basically tells you like, oh, this was my study time. This was the height of my study time. Well, I think there are different highlights during my studies. It's, uh, of course, if you go into the diplomas itself, of course, uh, getting your proper deuze, which we had back then, was ni- was a nice achievement. And then you, your, your bachelor diploma, your master diploma, it's always very nice reward for all your hard work of course those are ma- milestones but i think what is what will be my most dearest memory is uh, uh, my time at alembic because alembic is a very small association so you you always know quite a lot of people uh, you know them all and just meeting the, all the other students from my year i think this is the most dearest memory i have because nowadays we still meet, see each other quite often so we went uh, last year to each other's weddings. We still uh, help each other move uh, around the country. 
so just meeting, uh, getting to know like-minded people, let's say. <laughs> I think that's the dearest memory I have. Awesome. Nice. Okay, so yeah, about your PhD, what was it about specifically? If we take that topic right now, because a lot of our listeners are already in their master's, maybe looking into a PhD. So what was your PhD about? Yeah, so my PhD, uh, as I said, I did it under uh, Boulot Schuur, and also Sacha Kester, by the way, at the Sustainable Process and Technology Group. And my research was really broadly defined. Uh, it, it, the title was Solvent-Based Affinity Separation. So I think 90% of people say, what is that? In, in the essence, it means uh, you study how molecules interact with each other. And then uh, you start at a molecular level. Uh, how do they, do they interact? And then you see what are the implications at the process level. So, and yet I wanted to know beforehand uh, if I want to separate chemical A from chemical B, which kinds of solvent do I need to reduce the energy requirements? So in the end, it was all about saving costs in the chemical industry, uh, saving CO2 emissions, and as an added criterion, I also added that my solvent needs to be bio-based. So it needs to be also a sustainable solvent. And in this way, I could impact all facets of the process industry. And that, that criteria you added for yourself? That I was added not for myself, okay. yes. Because the chemical industry is not a very old or very not, not a very new industry. It's, it's very old. And most things already are being thought of or have been examined or all already used. And bio-based solvents is something quite new because they now really see that it, it is a benefit. It, it's better for the environment. And I saw that as a trend and I say, uh, well, I need to do something with it. So I included it my, myself in, into my uh, PhD assignment. And uh, luckily my promoters also thought it was a good idea. And uh, yeah, and so nowadays I have uh, a couple of patents about these processes. So they are still uh, really being done in the industry or being considered for the industry. Okay, and cool. So you actually had quite a few actual breakthroughs. Well, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and the company who, who now has the patent also thinks so. So it's quite nice. And, uh, and also, but it's also a very different way of thinking about your research. Because it's not like we have a very specified article or something that only very another PhD student will read, for, for instance. But this is in patent, so you uh, you have to formulate your thought processes like someone who reads it as an engineer or also as a lawyer because it's an it's a legal document. So it wasn't a steep learning curve to, to write that. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So if you compare your PhD to the industry, what are the main takeaways for you? Um, well, the, the main takeaways or uh, let's say the main differences, um, it's about... Uh, there, are, there are a couple of things. So first thing, in PhD, it can be quite lonely because it's it's your subject. Uh, you have to dive uh, dive into the subject. And of course, you have fellow PhD students and your promoters to uh, to help you along. But at the end, it's your task. And in industry, you will never have a task alone. You always have colleagues. You have a team. You, you have to go to a shared target. So I think this is one of the main things I really like about being in a company because you will always have a team around you. Uh, it's not like I didn't like my PG, of course, <laughs> but, my, but it's, it's, it's like comparing apples and oranges. Fair enough, fair enough. But even with comparing apples and oranges, they're both round. So let's say, are there any 
any things you learned during your PhD that you still use nowadays in industry? Every day. Every yeah. day. Well, what you really see is because if you do a PhD, it's an extension towards your master assignment. So all the, the aspects you learn during your master, uh, you keep on repeating during your PhD. So in the end, you have four years more experience in all those topics. And if you go to the to company, you immediately tell can tell that, that your experience level of the really fundamentals of uh, your chemical industry, it's much more easier for you. you. You can see very directly, okay, this is something which has potential or this is something uh, not because people are forgetting maybe some aspects. So every, every day I can really tell that, uh, well, uh, don't spend time on this subject or do, do really spend time on that subject. Okay. And are there also things you would say like, yeah, I never use these again? Or is it like everything you do, did during your PhD you still use nowadays? Oh, that, that is a good question. Um, there are some things I don't use anymore because it's not worthwhile for a company. Because part of my PhD work was uh, doing fundamental thermodynamics, modeling equation of states. And this is what I really like. I, uh, I find it interesting. Most people don't, but I find it interesting. But in a company, they don't care. They say, make a rough estimation. If it's 10% off, it doesn't really matter because we, we do include, of course, a safety margin. So if I have to say something, I miss the really complicated, detailed modeling just to figure out what is the exact way to do everything. But in a the company, they say, well, give me a ballpark. It's fine with me. Yeah, so you missed the perfectionism. That you basically use in your PhD? Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> no, not always. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, if we now focus more on your working life, how is it to work in Enschede? Because a lot of people move out to different parts of the Netherlands. We talked about it before the podcast. The chemical industry is big in the north, it's big in the south, and you have the Randstad. So why did you choose to stay here? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first reason was that my wife and me liked to stay in, in the East because we, we both grew up here. Uh, I'm from Deventer and she's from Zwolle. And our families are also here. So we, we prefer to stick uh, close to family. But then still, if you draw a line of 50 kilometers around all the towns, they can still have a pretty wide net within the Netherlands. But in the end, we looked around and uh, it was luckily that she got a pretty early on already a job here in Enschede. So I focused my searching area a little bit more closely here. Yeah, and then something popped up here in Enschede. And in the end, we really like it here because as, as a student, you get to learn Enschede from a student perspective. But if you are really just as a yeah, civilian, <laughs> <laughs> you see another side of Enschede and you see that, that Enschede is pretty great, really. It's, uh, it's, it's, it has the, the comfiness of a town, let's say a little town, but it, it, there's so much going on here. And, uh, and being close also to the university, close to the students nowadays, uh, I really like yeah, both sides of the coin. Okay. What, ex what surprised you the most about, as a civilian, Enschede, <laughs> to put it like that? Because yeah. I, I only know the student life with going out, uh, the city center, stuff like that, but yeah. more the nightlife. But what, well, what surprised uh, you the what most? My, what, what surprised me the most is that uh, also, let's say, the evening life in Enschede, not the nightlife, but the evening life, is also quite vibrant because we really like to go out for dinner. And, and uh, every year there are some new restaurants popping up here and then you can check it out. Uh, and uh, there are festivals around here. There's really a lot, lot going on. And that's what also surprised me because I lived on the campus for well, maybe seven years or something. 
and then then your 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 view of uh, Enschede can be quite limited. <laughs> if you only go to the to the city center at two o'clock in the morning, yeah, it's it's a different city. Yeah, and working in Enschede itself, like do you go to work by bike or by car or? No, we bike every day. Your yeah. wife as well to her work. Yeah, yeah. We so we both work at the Kennis Park. So okay. uh, her, her her company is yeah, two blocks w- uh, further. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, they have, it, it, it's quite nice. So we, uh, we we bought a house in our first year immediately uh, at the south of Enschede, and it's a little bit more than 50 minutes by bike. Oh. So every morning uh, we can nicely bike together and, b- and bike back. So it's uh, very nice, and uh, it's really I enjoy it because in the morning you can clear your air, uh, clear your head a little bit, uh, get a nice fresh of air, and also going back so you you don't take your work back home and i think if you every day you need to to go by car and you sit in in a traffic jam and then i think it will uh, not be so nice so i really like going by bike fair enough also when it rains or <laughs> depends on how how, <laughs> how heavy it rains uh now uh, I, i i i would have said that i will go by bike then but in the car it's very attractive <laughs> fair enough fair enough well, if we now take a bit more a step back from enschede so quite a distance actually and also step back from working life you, i learned that you did your internship in cape town how was that it was an uh, experience <laughs> now my first requirement of an internship was i wanted to do it outside of the netherlands i wanted to go somewhere i didn't really care about what my internship was about i wanted to have it in a nice different country and then my, my chairman let's up my, my board of course he told me at one day at, at uh, the ball uh yeah i uh, i arranged an internship at, in, in cape town i said well that, that's quite interesting give me the context and i will also arrange it so uh so then we both went there so we bought a car there so uh, uh he was uh, i think three months before me and then it was like an yeah estafette uh, <laughs> i don't know exactly what the, the, the english word for it is a relay a relay yeah and, and so we did a car relay so he bought the car and i sold the car <laughs> No, but it's it's very nice because it was a very different culture, of course, and a very different atmosphere. And my internship was about commissioning a palladium membrane system to uh, to purify sink gas and to get uh, water or uh, hydrogen out of it. So this is, now I think about it quite nice because I now see I work at a company which do about the same. So that's <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. No, but uh, the working with them, it's it's very difficult, different because we as Dutchies. Well, if you are one minute late to a meeting, then you have five missed calls, for instance. And there, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It, it will get done. It doesn't matter when. So it's nice. And I had there a couple of friends there also who were, who were Afrikaans. <laughs> so you can, you can really nicely go to uh, to see, to to experience the country itself and not stick to the touristic sites. Okay. It's it's funny to hear that you also did your internship abroad because Bob did that as well. He did it in San Francisco. And you also had the mindset of, I just want to go outside of the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, because you want to experience different cultures. And if you stick to the Netherlands, yeah, we say that we are all, all different, but in the end, yeah, we, we're pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So you were so far away for your internship, and now you're, well, you're literally stayed in the same city. What are the main differences and similarities between the two? Well... Um, staying sticking close to home or close to university, it means that the, the general atmosphere between all the Twentenaren is about the same. Everybody has the same 
down to earth mentality. Uh, just do the do the things. Don't talk too much. Just do it. Uh, be a little bit humble. N n not shout shouting from the roofs. We are the best and we are the greatest. But uh, but uh, be honest and say, well, we can do it pretty good. There are some things we do to consider. And in the end, then you see, well, okay, maybe we are the best. But we you never say that. And, uh, and, and for instance, if we go to Cape Town, they will shout from the roofs, oh, we can do this. And in the end, they say, well, you didn't do anything. So, yeah, those are the, the small differences. <laughs> <laughs> confidence levels. Com yeah, well, not confidence, but more like how um, how mouthy you are, how, uh, how much you're shouting instead of doing it. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's my uh, my wrong image, but uh, <laughs> this is a little bit what I picked up nowadays. <laughs> okay, nice. Uh, so... You work at Host or Pride, actually. Uh, what is? Could you maybe first tell us what Host and Pride are as yes. companies? What they do for those who don't know. All right. Now, um, Host is uh, as a company who is a little bit over thirty years old now. It's it's still a family-owned company, so uh, it's now uh, taken over by the son of the, of the founder. So it's uh, the second generation. And uh, Herman Klein Teslink, who, who founded Host, has a very good foresight, I think, because in, in the 90s, nobody was talking about sustainability. Nobody thought, well, let's reduce our gas consumption because gas is getting expensive. No, it was, back then it was, yeah, almost free. Uh, so he, he started up a little bit of, an, uh, of a consultancy department and who was a joint venture between Holek and Stork. Those are the, the were then, by back then and maybe nowadays still a big company, uh, and he started out doing consultancy work, just going to to uh, factories uh, to companies and say, well, this is how you can save a lot of money by just optimizing your system. And uh, that went on for a while, and in the end, uh, Herman thought, well, I'm giving a lot of advice to people, but I can do it also very good on my own. Uh, so he bought his department out and he privatized it, and this is how Host started just getting all this information about what they already had from all those consultancy firms and building their own uh, systems. And in the end, Host is go is into the bioenergy. It's Host bioenergy systems. And bioenergy systems can be in, uh, seen in two categories. We always say the hot and the cold side. Uh, the hot side is if you have all those uh, garbage, waste, you know, waste wood, for instance, you can burn it. If you burn it in a very efficient way, uh, you can get a lot of steam out of it. You can make it electricity, you have heat. And if you build this next to, for instance, greenhouses, you can supply the greenhouse with a lo lot of heat, with power to grow the plants. So that was the first thing. And the other thing is the cold side. And the cold side is if you push all the organic waste in a large concrete container, you cap it with a roof, membrane roof, and then you can collect all the biogas because it will rot, it will ferment. And all this biogas, you can, if you capture it very nicely, you can either burn it again in, an, in a gas motor. For instance, you can do it again um, in the greenhouses. Then again, you have water and heat and uh, steam. So this is how we start. And uh, for, for decades, we built biogigesters, CHP uh, plants. And it, it was a certain point that, that Herman thought, well, we are burning a lot of biogas, but the biomethane, what's in the biogas, it's also very valuable because biogas is nothing more than CO2 and methane. So what we then did was we worked together with, again, the university. So the membrane department here and the membrane supply. So we said, well, we need to make a membrane which can very efficiently separate CO2 from the methane. 
so the university yeah thought of the very nice membrane and we have found a manufacturer who could produce a lot of membranes and we said okay we will make sure that we have a very nice system a very in a nice container it's modular that we can place this system everywhere around the world yeah i think 2006 was the first one don't pinpoint me on the correct year and then we built the first installation and and then it uh, the company skyrocketed so the first installation was built under the name host but in the end it was so many systems were was were in demand and then we said okay we we will make a different name for it because it's a very different kind of project because we don't engineer procure and construct these things no we engineer it only once on the most efficient way and then we repeat repeat and repeat and then we said okay we market this bright and bright biomethane was the first name so this is how the interplay between host and bright is host is the parent company and bright is daughter so we started with only biomethane but then then we go let's say five years back a little bit before i started at, at, at the host i said well we all also have a lot of co2 in our systems of course because we separate the co2 from the biomethane and co2 is already also pure let's capture that capture the co2 liquefy it so you can store it and because co2 itself is a very important gas you could do it in your fizzy drinks in your beer of course uh, again you can also put it back into the greenhouses and the plants will, will grow more so then we now also liquefy the co2 we liquefy of course the, the methane so for lng and also uh, and this is where my partial job is is do the carbon capture so we also have the chimneys from the chp engines from the facilities just get the the flue gases into our system get the co2 out of it and we have pure co2 again so we are now moving from a very biomethane based company also to a co2 company because we think co2 is as important as the methane so this is a little bit how it, it, it works and then for the, the very last uh, update is uh, uh, since this year we also have a hydrogen producing company in our portfolio it's called high gear high gear is based in arnhem and uh, they are the um, world leader in small hydrogen producing systems also in the containers and we thought well this is a very nice complement to our systems because if you combine hydrogen with co2 you get methane again so this is how we integrate all these kinds of technologies and maximize methane production or maybe methanol production or everything what's renewable we are in it <laughs> okay so very short this is our host is <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting that those last parts you mentioned about the pure co2 and the pure hydrogen gas also made me think of a research currently done by tim verschagen mm -hmm. here as a phd at the ut where he makes uh he's developing a logic reactor as it's called the liquid out gas in concept reactor by uh, wim brilman where they make methanol from uh CO2 and hydrogen gas. Is that also something that could be in the future for host slash bright? Yes, yeah, definitely. Yes, yes. So we are we are currently also have already uh, uh, people dedicated for this development because okay. because we also see we are now mature in the CO2 market. We 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 can do it. We have proven our technology and we can capture CO2. We can liquefy CO2. But in the end, also, it's a certain point the CO2 market gets saturated what do you do with so much co2 and then we made also the same analysis many other people made well there's a couple of chemicals which are very valuable not only as fuel but as a chemical feedstock and that was methanol 
And it also helps that uh, my colleague, Martin Bos, also did his PhD at the same research group, which is, was the predecessor of Tim. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, we have a lot of knowledge in-house about doing the, the synthesis to methanol. But yeah, we are, we are on the short term, or a little bit, the medium, medium short term. Medi- medium term. <laughs> medium term. And <laughs> uh, we're also going into that because uh, I think we, we know that that is the, the future of the renewables. That's cool. So there's a really bright future, pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, now you know exactly know where the name comes from. Nice, nice. So how is the company culture there? Since it's a family-owned company still, it's a very flat culture. That is advantages and disadvantages, of course. But advantages, yeah. Uh, to give an example, because we are a fast-growing company, or the number of people grow is easier than growing a building. So what happens then is, of course, you go from fixed office spaces to flex office spaces, and you work partially at home. Uh, so there's a lot of flexibility. But uh, up to a couple of weeks ago, I was sharing my office with the CTO of the entire group. And when he was off, then maybe uh, sometimes an intern was sharing my, my office or some commissioning engineer. And otherwise, the CEO was, 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 was in my office. People don't care what your function is. It, it, everybody's the same. Everybody is, is working together. It doesn't really matter what, what, how long you are at the company, if you're young or old. It doesn't really matter. And all the, 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 the lines are very small. P- people will never say, well... I have to talk to my manager because then he can talk to his manager. I like, no, <laughs> because then you're already at the top. We don't have so much <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. much layers. And it's easier just to, to walk into the office and say, well, I have a question or I have a comment or I have something else. So it's very informal. And that's uh, something I really liked and still like at host. A bit like Alambique is. Yeah, 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 exactly. You can the same because uh, the board members are always approachable. Uh, maybe the FIA... Uh, Council of Advisors, is it? I don't know. Advisory Council, yeah. Advisory Council. Those are often, let's say, the old the old members, the old, old grumpy uh, students. And they are, they are still very approachable. And it's the same at host. Okay. And as an engineer, it's a very big part of, of host. But what type of engineers do you have? What do they do on a day-to-day basis? Is it always the same? Does it change for... For you, for example, are you always doing exactly the same or does it change depending on the project you're working on? It changes every day. I think if you see from the background, the majority of people working at host are mechanical engineers and chemical engineers. Of course, you have some electrical engineers and automotive engineers. But in the end, it all comes back to a technical study, a technical engineer. And every day is different because we do a lot of projects. Most engineers will do projects and we like always to keep our product as standard as possible because then you reduce the amount of engineering hours. But if you then you go to a site, if it's in the Netherlands or America or Australia, it doesn't really matter. Everything is different. So you always need to think very practically. How can I tie in my, my process with what's already on site? So it requires a lot of re- creativity, checking, and you see simple things like, will my gas flow not too fast through my pipe? Or um, if in, at night the temperature drops to minus 10, will not all my gases freeze to the, to, to the surface? Whereas ice formation. So every project has its different n- or n- other uh, variable, uh, yeah. Situations. Si- situation, challenges, problems, well, challenges. Uh, <laughs> and also it depends, of course, on your function. Because for myself, I'm also an R&D engineer, so I'm more into 
long-term projects, new ideas. I'm less to do with projects. If if they they um, call me in a project, then there's something really a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so no, every, every day is different. Okay, awesome. So maybe we can go to the articles you shared. You could maybe explain it better. The first article you sent about the change of, of gases. Um, yeah, thing. I think the, the first article I sent was about the, the, the EU ambition. Yeah. Uh, because the EU also, of course, has this green plan. I think our countryman Frans Timmermans uh, wrote it. I don't know for sure. But uh, the EU wants to be the front runner and be sustainable. And nowadays with our conflict in the Far East, this transition to a sustainable future, I think it went into an uh, accelerator. And one big thing is, of course, the power. A renewable power, but that's not the whole case because uh, you cannot make chemicals from power. You still need a carbon feedstock, and uh, nowadays we do fossil fuels for it. So we want to change the fossil fuels towards sustainable fuels. One thing is biomethane or biogas. So uh, getting enough biomethane in our grid to supply the EU for for enough uh, yeah, gas supply is a challenge, but we can do it. We have, a, we have enough waste in the EU to supply us with biomethane, but it takes time to, to build all these installations. And now you can see that, that the framework of the EU really supports the challenge. And the, this, this transition is of course a challenge to build everything, but technically it's very feasible. So that's also what I really liked of joining host because we are very in the middle of all these societal issues. And not that we cost them, but we, we provide a solution for it. And this is all happening just on the other side of the road here at UT. So it's amazing, right? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Which areas do you think can be improved upon most within the EU to get it more sustainable? Well, that's a different, difficult thing to say because we are all engineers. So we see a problem, we think of a solution, and they say, well, we can do it, right? Let's do it. But not, not everyone in, in, in the EU is an engineer. Uh, so there's a lot of emotions also spreading around about doing the, the right things. I think in the end, everybody wants to, of course, want to have a very sustainable future for our children and grandchildren. But explaining to everybody that, that some kind of decisions are the right decisions, that is very difficult. Getting, getting everybody on the same train to, towards the future there's something and uh, something is very difficult. And I think we as engineers are often not the right people to translate this because we are very factual and very, then we, then we say, you understand me, correct? right? It's <laughs> easy, but that, that's not always the case. So you really have to take every EU citizen with us and go to the future. Is that also something that a host takes into account? Uh, the more ethical well, side of it by... Lack of a better word, emotional side maybe. Um, yeah, we do, we try always to do it because every installation we build, uh, you always have to yeah you have neighbors. So if you build, for instance, I think a biodigest is very in, in good, great case for it because in the past things were done wrong sometimes with other companies about biodigesters. So because you are handling a lot of waste or manure or something. I, I can completely understand that someone says, well, I don't prefer to have 10 tons of manure in my back garden. Of course, I can understand that. But if you explain to them that it's very safe, you nothing will happen. And if something will happen, we know what to do with them. And, and then we say, well, if you do this, you can have free this. Uh, you are not reliable on Russia. We, uh, you, you 
you can enjoy a more sustainable future. So we try to to or we try we always will talk to the neighborhoods about this uh, either in with the government of course we always need the government and of course with with these kind of podcasts for instance <laughs> <laughs> and other and other uh, social events we we try always to to, to give uh, uh, the honest picture nice then uh, the other article is is a, also a very hot topic regarding as you mentioned, the Far East situation. It was a LinkedIn post about a installation from host that is in Ukraine in an active war zone. Yeah. I sent this article to you to, to, uh, to give him, um, an, a very recent update about what, what's happening in Europe. and But also to, to tell you what is still possible. Because if you tell someone, okay, there's an active war zone, you will want to deal with methane and well natural gas really you immediately say no why the hell you do want to do that uh, come on are you, are you crazy but in the end that post shows that if you're willing if if you have the determination everything is possible and even building a biogas upgrader in a, in a war zone remotely with google glasses it is possible and then even now that partly of the country of ukraine is, is in ruins you can still have these light points, some 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 optimistic view of the future. What will we ha- what will happen if Russia is gone and we will be more sustainable? It's it's still possible. Great, awesome. We also had a um, a few questions from people from within our study, and the first one we had is in about Olympic, and in what regards has Olympic changed? from when you were active here to nowadays? Well, it, it changes tremendously. But we, we, for example, we recently had our old board day and you could notice a big difference in, in types of boards over the years. But from that day, what do you think are the biggest changes? Yeah, yeah, I, it was a little bit of a joke because uh, only one thing has changed and that we, when I was board year, I was still in the horse tower. And you are now in a carré. That's the only thing that changed. I think uh, at every drink I, I, I'm here and need the old board day, but also just the the do for up drink. What I was, I think last year, I don't know sh- for sure. You can see that the mentality of all the students are exactly the same as, as 11, 12, 13, 15 years ago. Ellen um, Bickles, which was always called. <laughs> um, I don't know why, but it's always the same persons. It's always not, not the same person, but the same mentality. I think Alembic always remains itself it is always a very low-key uh, association and and i think after you you graduate and you are in in the in, in company or whatever then you see how much you've learned within alembic because it, it will it will surprise you because so many things what you think now it's very normal is for some people not normal and, and that's only often a very good thing uh, i'm really curious for me it will take a while still but yeah, for me, Olympic always feels like a family away from home, basically. We're changing topics quite a bit. <laughs> so also with the next question, which is also a very hot topic and also something we will discuss partly next episode. But do you feel that the universities in the Netherlands should cut the ties with companies that they deem non-sustainable? Should they not focus on research output rather than trying to dictate industry forms or 
starting with the first question, maybe <laughs> split it up. So uh, do you think that universities should cut the ties with non-sustainable companies? I think that's a very emotional idea. Uh, but if you think about it rationally, uh, I should not do that. And the reason is behind this. I, I can understand people who, who are saying this. They say, well, for instance, the oil companies are very damaging for the environment. Please cut ties with them and, uh, and don't consider them on universities. I can see that. It's a very emotional response because if you don't think about it <laughs> and really uh, speak, uh, speak from your heart, okay, it's fine. But if you start to think about it and be rational, uh, it's a very, very wrong idea because in the end, uh, we're in the chemical industry, uh, chemical industry and molecules are molecules. It doesn't really matter if they come from fossil sources or uh, sustainable sources. Let's say methane is methane, CO2 is CO2. Um, and all these oil companies, for instance, have a tremendously amount of experience, knowledge about how to do these uh, processes as the, and in the most optimal way. So they have 90, 100 years of experience in optimizing those systems. But why do you want to throw away that experience and knowledge for an, an emotional response? You need, we need those oil companies because they have the, the capacity to invest as you now also see, is those companies invest the most in the, in, in the sustainable industry. So it's, it's I, I understand the response, but uh, I think if you really are logical and rational, uh, it's, a, it's not a good idea. Would you then say that it is, that universities should maybe push those non-sustainable companies more towards finding solutions for pollution? Or just let them be, let them decide their own research? Of course, support that. I think... As a university, you can, of course, say, well, uh, we have pro professors in the sustainability. We don't have professors in the oil. So no. I think that that, that is an already a strong argument. Yeah. And also all the, all the research groups uh, have funding, either from the companies or always also from universities or from governments. And those funding will never be into optimizing fossil fuels. They will always be towards alternatives, uh, energy reduction, so in the end, there are a lot of processes already in play which dictate or guide the research output towards sustainability. So I think in the end, the markets will go into that direction. Okay. I'm also really curious how this conversation will pan out next uh, next week because it's, it's a very interesting view you give. It's a view that if you think rationally, <laughs> it makes the most sense like that, to not cut the ties. Um, yeah, but in but the end, of course, this is where from uh, this again from an engineer perspective. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I, I don't want to sound too negatively towards the people who have that response because if if you don't know what's happening in the chemical industry and you only look and read into the in the newspapers or on the social media websites, yeah, of course you can have an, an emotional response. Everybody has a response. I also have an emotional response, but I can balance that with my knowledge and rational thinking. And that's not not everybody's cup of tea. Fair enough. Um, I've been asking you quite a lot of questions over the last 45 minutes. So maybe reverse it. Do you still have questions for me? Because we actually reached the end of the episode already. Oh, I expected a lot of questions, but not this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, uh, let's maybe do that first. Do you have, what kind of questions did you expect besides uh, this question? No, no, I think the uh, you you figured this quite 
Yeah, I figured out these questions a little bit, uh, luckily. Um, no, because in, in the end, I, I thought of how do I see myself working towards a better future, a brighter future. <laughs> 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 and um, I, I don't have the, let's say, the. I don't think that, that I will make a big impact, of course not. Uh, but I, if, if, if I only make a, a very little bit of a dent in the in the in the in the fossil fuel industry, for instance, and make a little bit of a bump into the sustainable future, then I, then I'm happy. Uh, so yeah, so this is where the topics you also covered, and, and of course alembic. Alembic is where was more than ten years part of my life, and still <laughs> part of my life because I'm still going to the drinks here. So. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to to um, to to, uh, to bounce back the question, uh, do you have now a very s nice idea about what host is doing and what what, what is what, what he what, what we are trying to do in the world? I would say so. And mainly the the sustainability s focus on that has really stuck with me. I think I understand a little bit what <laughs> what host does now. Oh, that's great. What Bright does, iGear does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, in the end, we are uh, nowadays quite a lot of comp uh, large company, and we always have a lot of interns and, and students w uh, with us because we the market is developing very quickly, uh, and we have to keep up. And we are keeping up, and we do that by, I think, at all times we have about fifteen interns walking around uh, at Bright Host, but also High Gear, and uh, every year we have two two moments in the, in the spring and in the autumn that we hire newer new students as interns or working students who can work let's say one day a week at us so uh, for you <laughs> <laughs> and also all the listeners uh, if you want to have a very nice um, informal internship or graduation internship uh, in Enschede but also in Arnhem of course uh, because at, at the, in the high care office uh, please go to our website, just Google us, and uh, you will see a lot of internships. And if you have an idea by yourself or an internship on online, it's not really your cup of tea, still contact us. We will always think about new assignments, and there's always enough to do to, to go for a nicer future. Awesome. Thank you, Thomas, for being our guest and for having this awesome conversation with you. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it as well. <laughs> Uh, we will let you know when the episode is out. It will be out on YouTube, on Spotify, and of course the Unbeak website. And again, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. 